This is program number 2063. Tape number 13. Hal Canner is the speaker. I haven't seen many of you since this afternoon. Um, it's been much too long. Um, we're going to get on with the show because we're a little bit late. I just have to give you a, a, a few facts. Uh, our speaker tonight, as you know, is Hal Cantor. And uh, he has brought with him, at little or no expense, uh, a print of a film made by the Writers Guild. Now, you know the Writers Guild. They're the people who are on strike. They, they made a picture some months ago called Words. And uh, we're going to run this at the end of Mr. Cantor's presentation. Uh, it runs 13 minutes, and then he will answer questions from you. That will give him time to go to his pull motor and get um, uh, his breath back. Uh, the film itself is, I don't know how many of you have seen a film the directors made several years ago called Precious Images, which was clips of 300 pictures compressed in six minutes, where by the time you recognize the clip that was shown, you're on to the next one. This is done in a similar style by a man named Chuck Workman, who is a brilliant filmmaker. And uh, what this tries to do and does is to point the importance of the writer. Uh, that it's called words. And it is, as the others were a collection of images, this is a collection of lines, of lines from pictures that you will remember that are memorable, and uh, I think you're going to love the picture if the projector works. Um, introducing Hal Cantor is a very difficult job. Uh, he is, he's come out of the radio era of the motion picture industry, and may I point out that um, um, in our audience tonight, we have uh, a the former president of NBC, a very distinguished friend of mine and of Hal's and uh, of the entire industry, Mr. Pat Weaver. Pat. There you are. Well, in the old, in the old radio days, uh, Hal Cantor got his start. He then moved into TV and then into films where he was a writer, producer, director of some 25 feature pictures. And then uh, he went back to television. I don't know whether that's regression or progression. I, I can't tell. He is currently the producer of a continuing film series called You Can't Take It With You. Uh, he is also annually the producer of the Writers Guild show. When they have their annual banquet, it is always Hal Cantor who writes and produces the show. Now, I must say in, in passing that he is a member of the board of the Writers Guild. As I said a moment ago, the Writers Guild is on strike. His wife is a member of the Writers Guild. His daughter is on the negotiating committee. Uh, so that uh, they are a family that are they are a family that are, is, is deeply ingrained uh, in uh, the writer's strike. And as we were talking at dinner, uh, it's a wonderful organization. Uh, 
everything within me says, go, Yield, fight, because they are for those of us, those of you who uh, work in the loneliness of a room and a piece of paper and a typewriter, the Guild uh, provides things that you would never otherwise get, such as uh, a health plan, uh, group life insurance, a credit union, uh, pensions. Uh, where else would, would a writer get that? The Guild has done that over the years, and uh, uh, you know I, I don't mean to be political near the polling place, but uh, uh, I just want you to know where I stand. I am totally for them. Now, uh, in introducing in introducing Hal, I would like to give you, uh, and I think he had forgotten much of this, but there was another writer's strike in 1985 when the writers fought like hell for certain privileges which they eventually got. And in 1985, Hal Cantor uh, in a statement said that he was demanding a clause in the new writer's contract which insisted that no studio executive can come into a writer's office unless accompanied by an adult. <laughs> he, he, he also said that he wanted the writer's health insurance to also cover famine. He demanded that every writer be guaranteed a parking space within three blocks of a bus line to the studio. <laughs> and he demanded further that actors not be allowed to alter a single line of dialogue unless they want to. <laughs> and he said it seems sure that the writer's strike will be settled, and Tuesday morning thousands of writers will be back at their telephones looking for work. Uh, he has uh, been in all the media of communications, radio, television, film. He is known in Hollywood as a brilliant writer, director, producer, wit, and with, I won't say that he's the funniest man in the world, because that's terrible, but I think you'll enjoy hearing from Hal Cantor. Nevertheless, many years ago, my good and funny friend, the late Fred Allen, attended a dinner party with his wife, Portland. Their host had a small, noisy dog that barked their arrival even before Fred rang the doorbell. And as the other guests arrived, the dog kept running to the door, yapping loudly to Fred's constant annoyance. When all the guests had assembled, the obnoxious animal ran to the door again, barking his fool head off. The host opened the door, but nobody was there. Whereupon Fred turned to Portland and he said, the son of a bitch even barks on spec. I uh, 
I want to thank you for greeting me on SPEC this evening. You have restored my confidence in Woody Allen's observation that 80% of life is showing up. As Paul indicated, incidentally, Paul, I want to thank you for that wonderful introduction. Of all the introductions I've received over the years, that one was by far the most recent. <laughs> anyway, for the, uh, <clears throat> for the past 16 weeks, I've been unemployed because the Writers Guild of America is on strike. That's what this button that I'm wearing indicates. We're on strike. However, it did give me a chance to finish a book. It's one I started reading during the last strike. <laughs> and I'm delighted to be here in beautiful Santa Barbara, the non-smoking section of California. I've come up here at uh, Barnaby's and Paul's invitation to bring you a message of inspiration and hope, a message that you may well remember for 10 or 15 minutes. Now, in addressing any group of writers, one must presuppose that the most common denominator among the audience is literacy. Therefore, the more gifted among you will note that I'm reading. <laughs> and I... I must admit to you that I feel a sudden kinship with a young rabbi who was about to deliver his first sermon. He labored long and hard on his text, writing and rewriting for several days. And then when Friday night arrived, he arose to the pulpit with confidence to deliver his sermon. And later he asked his old grandfather, who had sat among the congregation glowing with occasional pride, asked him what the old man thought of the talk. Frankly, my boy, the old man said, I was disappointed. In the first place, you read it. In the second place, you read it badly. And in the third place, it wasn't worth reading in the first place. <laughs> well, my grandfather's not here, so I'll take a chance. Now, one of the biggest challenges in preparing any sort of an address for an evening like this is finding a clever way to begin. <clears throat> in closing, To the writer who wants to work in films or in television, let me pass along some advice that was given to me by a veteran writer when I first started out myself. Hugh Wedlock. He said, never yell at a producer. Tomorrow he may be the guard at the gate and he won't let you in the studio. <laughs> I became a professional writer when I was 15 years old. For years, I was the youngest member on the staff of every show I did, in radio and later in television. And as the kid who could type, I always sat at the typewriter, which I came to realize is the real seat of power. And then suddenly, one day, I realized 
that I was no longer the youngest writer in the room. That day, as I recall, was last Thursday at a guild meeting. <laughs> I'm really astonished at how many young writers there are. And what astonishes me even more is how good they are. I don't know where they come from, but they're here. They're all around us. Some of us, some of you are even in this room, I'm convinced. When I first began writing jokes for radio, I was told by my producer that I was writing for an audience with a 12-year-old mentality. And he was right. He was my audience. <laughs> I had to please him before the script went to the actors and to that ultimate jury, the audience. It's perhaps, perhaps significant that most of the men who judged the IQ of the audience in those days quickly dropped out of view. Unfortunately, a few of them have been replaced by better educated but equally opinionated tyrants who are in, in power today. But going back to the old days, one of those fellows went from radio to motion picture production. As a matter of fact, several of them did. This particular one was assigned a story which the studio had never been able to adapt successfully for the screen. The producer then assigned a friend of mine, Ed Hartman, an expert screenwriter, to that project. Ed read the original material and the several screenplays that had been attempted. He studied the problem and he went back to the producer. I'm sure Ed told him this can be licked if we just change the time of the action from the present to, uh, oh, say, 1820. And the producer frowned. 1820? He said, when was that? <laughs> that, uh, that same producer had told me once confided that whenever he had a knotty problem to solve, he liked to drive up to San Francisco, go down to the waterfront, and sit on the dwarfs. That man is no longer in the entertainment industry, and Ed Hartman went from films to television as a producer-writer, and that move is an indication of the progress all film and TV has made. I don't mean the producer's absence. I mean the assumption of multiple duties by a competent writer. More and more of them have moved from behind their typewriters to production capacities as executive producers, producers, directors, story editors. They create shows of their own. Writers like Gary Marshall, Stephen Bochco, Stephen Cannell, Glenn Larson, Esther Shapiro, the Charles Brothers, Larry Gelbart, Mel Shavelson, Mort Lockman, to name a few that come immediately to mind. In feature films, Woody Allen, Mel Brooks, Jim Brooks, Carl Reiner, Oliver Stone, the great Billy Wilder, and the late John Huston are other outstanding examples of writers who took on additional duties. It's not the economic factor that lures most writers, for in the majority of cases, in comedy particularly, the writers often earn larger fees than producers or directors, particularly in television. Usually there are two factors, the most compelling of which is the desire to protect what you've written and ensure that it gets on the screen as you visualize it from the outset. And the other is a studio parking space with your name on it. Every season, more and more of my colleagues become hyphenates, writer-producers, writer-directors, writer-story editors, and I'm sure that were you to ask them all which is the most important contribution to any show, the overwhelming majority would tell you that it's the script. One man who was vociferous in that contention was the late Goodman Ace, 
once considered the dean of American comedy writers. If you weren't familiar with his work in radio and in television, you may recall his weekly witty commentary in the Saturday Review, a magazine that appeared on Tuesdays. <laughs> I first met Goodman Ace after the war. That's World War II. It's the one that General Eisenhower designed the jackets for, you may remember. <laughs> Got a big write-up at Look Magazine, Life Magazine. They all covered it. It was a very, very popular war in some circles. You know. Anyway, I came out of the Army, and I went to work as one of Goody's associates writing the Danny Kay radio show. At that time, Goody was the producer and the head writer and had a staff of four others helping him turn out a script every week. The six of us met every day in the den of the Aces Park Avenue apartment in New York. Goody sat at the typewriter, the rest of us lounging on sofas and easy chairs, tossing lines back and forth. And Goody would indicate approval of a line by typing it into the script. One of our writers was a pacer. He couldn't sit still. He'd wander out of the den, into the living room, down the hall, and then amble back into the den again. Once he came rushing in from the hallway and he said, hey, a great joke came up while you were out of the room. <laughs> and after he, we stopped laughing, he told the joke. Goody shook it off. It sounds contrived, he said. Well, it's sure, the writer said, I just contrived it. <laughs> When Danny had to return to Hollywood to make a film, some of us came out with him. I took over Goody's job as head writer because Goody refused to come out. California, he said, is too close to Mary Livingston. He didn't care for Mrs. Jack Benny, even though Jack was one of his closest friends. In time, Goody abdicated his positions as producer, creator, and co-star of his own radio show, Easy Aces, to devote himself exclusively to writing. And knowing him as I did, I suspect he wrote for the weekly magazine, not for the money. Lord and Taylor knows he was wealthy enough. He wrote because he wanted his lines presented as they were written and not diluted by advertising executives, agencies, networks, actors, or actors' friends. It's a pretty safe bet that the editors of the Saturday Review didn't tamper with his copy. However, he did accept a job with NBC as a consultant. His first assignment was to, to, my mouth is so dry. Does anybody have a wet sponge or is there, huh? Or is, is, there, is there any water or, or whiskey or anything like that around here? Yes. Huh? Okay, I'll drink out of the pitcher if there's water in it. <laughs> anyway, I'll, I'll, let me struggle on. If dust flies out of my mouth, you Anyway, uh, oh, thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> I think it's a little diabetic. <laughs> anyway, back to Goody. He did accept a job with NBC as a consultant. Pat, this may have been during your tenure there. Goody's first assignment was to discuss a new program with a network executive. The fellow showed Goody a series of brilliant color drawings of some elaborate sets. This, he explained, is a show we're putting together for the fall season, and we'd like your input. The entire action takes place in these sets, a replica of Washington Square in New York. What's the show about, Goody asked. 
It stars Ray Bolger in Washington Square, the executive said. It's a musical comedy staged in these sets. Aren't they great? And Goody agreed that the drawings were indeed great, but he persisted in knowing what the show was about. Where's the script? Who wrote it? The executive admitted that they had no script. All they had were the drawings and the determination to do an hour show every week set in Washington Square. Call me when you get a script, Goody suggested, and he left. Well, the show went on the air. You know what it was called? Ray Bolger in Washington Square. Guess how long it lasted? Three weeks. The following spring, the same executive called Goody again, and he told him to come up and discuss a new program concept. Before I do, Goody said, just one question. Who's drawing it? <laughs> Over the years, I've had occasion to recall that anecdote because I've worked as both writer and consultant on 21 of the annual Academy Award shows, the Oscars. And every year I've done it, I'm astonished that the writers are the last people to engage, to be engaged on the production staff. Who do you think is hired long before the writers? The set designer. You'd think after 60 years of Oscars, the Academy would know better. The most successful of the shows were invariably those where the writers came in early. Who wrote it is still a hell of a lot more important than who drew it. The strip comes first, and the beginning was the word. How many times have you heard that? The Old Testament tells us of a time when the world was in chaos, rebelling against its leaders, denying its maker, wandering aimlessly, selfishly, hedonistically. And Moses went up to the mountain, where a mighty clap of thunder was the overture. The curtains of dark clouds parted, and a mighty hand reached down to deliver unto Moses two stone tablets on which were cut ten lines, the first script to guide the players. <laughs> and Moses took it down the mountain to bring order out of chaos. And I might add that if the world had stuck to that original script, instead of ad-libbing around it so much, we'd all be in a hell of a lot better shape than we are today. <laughs> so much for the Reverend Jimmy Swaggart note in my text. You know. Jimmy Swaggart. I can't stand that man's hornier-than-thou attitude. You know. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you about one script I wrote. It was for Elvis Presley's first starring role, Loving You. Instead of telling in my own words, I'm going to read from a book called Elvis and Gladys, perhaps the best of the many books about Presley. It was written by Elaine Dundee, a woman I do not know. A week or so before Christmas, 1956, Miss Dundee wrote, a visitor from Hollywood called upon Elvis. He was the screenwriter Hal Cantor. Producer Hal Wallace had bought Lonesome Cowboy, a story in good housekeeping by Mary Agnes Thompson, and had commissioned Cantor to adapt the screenplay, from which little finally remained of the original story other than the song with that title. Although the script had already been roughed out, Wallace felt Cantor needed to get to know the real thing and see him in action. The fact that Cantor was a southerner, too, from Savannah, Georgia, would be a plus. 
The visit, therefore, was carefully planned to coincide with Elvis's one public appearance that month, a Louisiana Hayride concert held in Shreveport, Louisiana's Youth Center. When Cantor discovered what Cantor discovered about Elvis during his stay, talking to him, driving to Shreveport with him, watching him at the concert, above all, skillfully drawing him out about his life, was not at all one senses what he'd been prepared for. True. What he discovered was neither a callow young show-off made arrogant and cocky by success, nor an ignorant hillbilly unexpectedly swept to the crest by some silly new music fad. Some of what he discovered about Elvis inspired the article he wrote for Variety and the rest went on to the revised script of Loving You. The article, dated January 9th, 1957, began, and now here's me quoting Dundee, quoting me. The young man with the ancient eyes and the child's mouth, a body as loose and unadorned and unpredictable as a whip. This description, Dundee interjects, was thought sufficient identification. Elvis is never once mentioned by name. And though Cantor has him waking from the nightmare of poverty to find the brilliant son of fame suddenly burst in his eyes, a tristful and melancholic note is nevertheless soon established. For the first time in print, the thorns are to be seen in the bed of roses. More than just reporting a happening, Cantor had picked up Elvis's mood that December. In the eye of the hurricane, the young man took it all with unnatural good grace and humility. Certainly he was enjoying himself. He was enjoying the himself he read about, the himself people stormed the sea, the glamorous, exciting, romantic, soul-stirring himself that evoked a strange magic on audiences, whipping them into a frenzy of appreciation no entertainer in his time had been able to match. But after a year, there were no more clothes to buy. There was no more good food to be wanted. There was no room for more Cadillacs or motorcycles. The home appliances were all bought and paid for. The future was assured. Mom and Dad had nothing left to desire, for they had all they could ever use. After giving the exhibition of public mass hysteria and the tidal wave of adoration caused by Elvis's performance their due, Cantor ends by recounting an event small, quiet, and banal but which under the circumstances lands with a shock and leaves a taste of irony and pathos. The rear door of the auditorium flies open and the young man dripping wet dives headlong into the back seat of the patrol car. The door slams. Back in the alley, more cops whisk the young man through the hotel kitchen into the service elevator and up to his floor. En route along the hall, other police join the entourage to form a bodyguard. Not a moment too soon. Inside the room, the young man falls exhausted on his bed. Slowly, he peels off his shirt, wipes his back with a towel. He stares at the ceiling in silence. Now he has a decision to make. He'll take his time about making it because it's the only thing left he has to do tonight, the only thing left he can do. He can't go out for a walk. He can't drop dimes in a jukebox and drum his fingers on an oilcloth tabletop. He can't press his nose against the windows of haberdasheries. He can't take the top down on any of the Cadillacs and cruise in the moonlight. He can't ask a girl to dance or share a Coke with him. He can't do any of the things he'd really like to do. He has to stay in that hotel room, a prisoner until early morning when he can escape again. The night stretches ahead, long and bleak. There's only one decision to make. What will he order for dinner? One can imagine how the article affected Colonel Tom Parker, the deep and genuine human emotion that came through in the writing along with the news 
that Wallace had chosen Cantor also to direct Loving You and the rewritten script reflecting what Cantor had learned, it is clear that Cantor's main message to Elvis was, beware your manager taking you over. So wrote Ms. Dundee. And it took me 30 years to learn from her what I was telling Elvis. I didn't know that. At the time, I thought I was just telling a pretty good yarn and telling it with as much honesty as I could. All my life, I've heard writers complain about the loneliness of our profession. And I agree that sometimes it is lonely indeed. But that, it strikes me, is only when we're having difficulty with a scene or a story or a character. When things are going well, I find that I'm far from lonely. I'm in the company of all the characters with whom I'm dealing. When the story's going well, I can sit for hours, literally, putting on paper the words the characters are dictating to me. When they stop, it's usually a sign that the story's wrong or the scene doesn't fit, and then it does indeed get lonely. One of the better things about writing for the screen is that you've always got somebody to talk to when you do hit a block. A true story I enjoy about collaboration. Comedy writer Jay Burton was working with another fellow named Freddie Williams. They were writing the Bob Hope radio show. Freddie was hung over one morning, most mornings in fact, and he lay on the couch in their office. Jay sat at the machine typing and then he typed something, he'd read aloud uh, something like, uh, she was so skinny when she drank tomato juice she looked like a thermometer. Freddie picked up a newspaper. And Jay would type another line, he read, uh, she was so fat at her wedding, they threw puff rice. <laughs> Freddie dropped the paper over his face and he sighed heavily. Jay typed another line. Uh, when she, she was so fat, when she got undressed, she looked like a stack of inner tubes. She had so many chins, she had to keep a bookmark in her mouth. <laughs> Freddie rolled over away from Jay. Jay typed another line, he looked at it, then he pulled the sheet from his machine, he bowled it up and he tossed it in the wastebasket basket and whereupon Freddie would look around and he smiled and he said now you're talking <laughs> one of the most rewarding aspects of writing for the theater is that the author even if he does a draft in the solitude of his workplace can eventually escape that lonely arena to rub himself against the presence the intellect and the creativity of others I think I've been most fortunate in that regard because I've been blessed with an ability to work quickly alone and then take my pages out into the rehearsal halls and the stages where I continue to create in collaboration with others. Among the most instructive and delightful as well as demanding artists with whom I was profitably associated was the American theater's most inventive clown, the perfect food, fool, Ed Wynn. How many of you remember Edwin? Oh, older crowd than I expected. <laughs> One spring day, some years ago, when I was employed at 20th Century Fox, Ed came to lunch with me at the studio commissary. And it so happened that the fine actor Edward G. Robinson was working on the lot that day. And he stopped at our table to greet and chat with his old friend Ed. And when he left, Ed said, he looks wonderful for a man his age. And I leaned closer to the new hearing device that Ed had proudly shown me moments before, and I said, you look wonderful, too, for a man your age. 
Ed scowled that mock frown that only his face could make so outrageously funny, and he said, I look wonderful for a woman my age, but not for a man. <laughs> and then he added, giggling, he said, I was downtown last week and I saw a building as old as I am. It looked terrible. Ed had come to lunch with me to report what a big hit he'd been, delivering a speech in Washington a few, a few days earlier. It was a speech I'd written for him. Now he wanted help with another speech. It may be my last, you know, he chided gently. If God spares me, I'll be 80 this year. And every public appearance I make has to be memorable because it may be my last. If God spares me. He repeated that phrase several times. And I know now that he knew then what he carried inside of him. But Ed was never one to speak of ailment, and he frequently announced he'd gotten a clean bill of health from his many doctors. As we chatted and Ed attacked a sizable lunch, a writer friend passed the table, a Hungarian who smiled a greeting to me, and then at a double take a performer might envy, he noticed my companion. Arms outstretched, he came to the table to grasp Ed's hand. You are the most darling clown in the entire world, my friend exploded. All of my considerable life I have admired you. You are magnificent. Your charm, your wit, your comedy, your grace. You are the most delightful creature I have ever seen, and I'm madly in love with you. And Ed smiled at the man, and he asked impishly, Are you married? <laughs> <laughs> the joke didn't register on my friend, or if it did, he ignored it because a sore spot had been touched. His face clouded with pain. Mr. Wynn, I have been married for 30 years, he sobbed, and I have loathed and despised every moment of it. I am married to a beast of a woman who has been driving me insane for 30 years. I loathe, hate, despise that dragon lurking in my house. Am I married 30 years of misery and torture? But you, Edwin, I love. <laughs> and he was gone. And Ed picked at his food in silence for a moment, and then he looked up, he finally, he says, what does that man do? I said, he's a writer. Is he a good writer, Ed asked. Excellent, I said, he's one of the leading playwrights in Hungary, a very fine screenwriter, Laszlo Vodny. Why do you ask? Ed said, well, maybe he'll come up with a happy ending for his marriage. <laughs> Lots he did, he died. <laughs> but before he did, he appeared at a college as a guest lecturer. He spoke about writing for the theater and adapting plays for the screen. And throughout his lecture, he noticed one surly young man sitting in the front row, and he knew that the student was going to give him a hard time during the question and answer period to follow. And sure enough, when the time came, the young man raised his hands. Lassie avoided him as long as he could, choosing other students' questions, and finally, eventually, he accepted the fellow. Well, tell us, the young man demanded. You know so much about it. What's a good play? What is a good play? My friend stared at him for a beat, and then he said, You're in New York. You have tickets for the theater. The curtain is at eight. You and your wife, who's always late, rush through a meal in the restaurant. You come out to find it's raining. It's six blocks to the theater. You cannot get a cab, so you go on foot. You arrive just as the house lights dim. You sit in your crowded, cramped seats. Your feet are wet. You have a damp overcoat in your lap. The curtain goes up on a place you've never seen before. 
people you don't know are on a stage talking about other people you never heard of? And while they talk, you cannot. You sit in the dark, your stomach churning from the hasty meal. You cannot write, you cannot write letters, you cannot play the violin. The curtain comes down. You take your wet coat to the check stand. You buy a drink of sugar water made with orange dye for two dollars. You go in the lobby where people blow smoke in your face. Then the buzzer sounds. You return to your crowded seat. Your wife is furious because the ladies' room was full. The curtain goes up, the actors are on stage talking some more. You sit there listening because you have nothing else to do. You cannot turn on the radio. You can't do exercise or bake a cake or ride a bicycle or play pinochle. And finally, as the curtain comes down, you stand up, you applaud, you say to your wife, I like that. That, my friend, is a good play. <laughs> now, I was asked to speak to you for about 45 minutes or an hour before we have a question and answer session. So as long as we have more time left, I'd like to tell you a little bit more about Edwin and some others with whom I've worked. I'm not keeping you up, am I? Oh, okay. That's good, because I noticed a few people dozing off there. Anyway, if these anecdotes have a common theme, it's because they're part of some work that I've been doing on a book I hope to complete one of these years, and some astute publisher gives me a large enough advance. One of the chapters in the book has to do with the private fears of public personalities, and it begins with this revelation. Edwin, veteran of 40 years in the theater and a Broadway star, was five minutes away from his television bow in September 1949. As his head writer, I was in his dressing room to watch the great clown pull a bottle of bourbon from the depths of his bizarre stage costume. He emptied half of it into a water tumbler, and he drank the full glass as if it were skim milk. Then, with an outrageous wink, he patted his belly and he said, It makes the butterfly wings too soggy to fly. <laughs> he then doused the handkerchief with sea breeze aftershave lotion and daubed his lips with it. I don't want anyone on stage to know I had a drink, he whispered, as if he could hide it. His bourbon breath bleached the stripes out of my necktie. <laughs> the tumbler of bourbon was a ritual drink before every show. Wynn's bottle of sea breeze lasted longer than his fifths of old granddad. Another comedian who soaked his butterflies before going on stage was my itty-bitty buddy, George Goble. George always considered any reliable Scotch a friend in time of need, as he is admitted publicly. I know my capacity, he says. I always get drunk before I reach it, but I know it. <laughs> Johnny Carson has recalled a night when George was a guest on The Tonight Show, and he invited Carson to share a nip of sauce before airtime. And when Johnny gently refused, George looked at him with admiration and said, Don't tell me you're going out there alone. Lonesome George just don't hardly never go out there alone. Another opening night, a few minutes before the original Goebel show was to go on the air, a show that Pat Weaver incidentally put on the air, live from Hollywood. It was the first telecast of the series that launched Goebel to stardom. I was in the control room 
going over last-minute notes with the technical crew when our stage manager rushed in, earphones dangling around his neck, perspiration glistening in his face. Where's George, he cried, on the verge of hysteria. I can't find Goble. Has anybody seen George Goble? We all rushed from the booth, scattering to look for our star, who was small enough to hide almost anywhere. And I found him on stage, behind the stacked scenery. He was in the compassionate hands of our property master, Joe Rios. George Goble, who was about to become a national hero, was vomiting in a bucket. It wasn't the scotch. He could handle that. It was pure terror. He couldn't handle that until he got on stage. Judy Garland. One of the best love stars in the world, Judy was a glorious gift to audiences and to all with whom she worked. She was a joy to write for, and I did often when she was a guest on Bing Crosby's radio show, which I wrote with Bill Morrow for four years. Apart from her musical gifts, nobody ever delivered a comedy line better than she with a more sure instinct for timing. Moreover, Judy could invest a quality of pathos into the silliest of lines, giving it a dimension of humanity it lacked on paper. Judy was a delight to work with, a pleasure to write for. She had made some widely publicized, she had rather, some rather widely publicized personal problems. If you're going to keep shooting that flash, I'm going to get a very serious tan. <laughs> there was considerable speculation that Judy Garland was through, that she would never work again while well, she was far from through. She fought her way back to stability, and when she was strong enough, chose the Crosby radio show as the vehicle to bring her back to the public. Her previous appearances with us had all been happy ones for everyone on both sides of the microphone. She arrived at the Hollywood studio with Carlton Alsop, a handsome, amusing, suave companion who had taken her into protective custody against the curious. And Judy was much thinner than the last time I'd seen her, more agitated, but still a charming, cooperative woman whose luminous eyes could melt a man's pacemaker. She, as did every other performer, had enormous respect for our star. Bing was always an engaging conversationalist, the consummate gentleman, tactful, easygoing, unpretentious, approachable, and thoroughly professional in his work. Music rehearsals under the direction of that other amiable gentleman, John Scott Trotter, went as smoothly as always. Judy was in fine voice. Announcer Ken Carpenter took the stage to face a packed house, all of them eager to see the return of Judy Garland. Ken began his audience warm-up. Backstage, Alsop had an urgent request. He wanted me to get word out to Ken that Judy did not want to be introduced before the show began. She'd become fearful that the audience would be hostile as some of the press had been. She was afraid they'd hate her. She cried to Alsop that she'd made a dreadful mistake in agreeing to do the show at all. She didn't have the courage to walk out and face strangers who, she sobbed, would be checking her wrists for scars. Without dialogue to read or lyrics to sing until the show began taping, she would not subject herself to their merciless scrutiny. Bing happened by. Without a word to Alsop or to me, he turned to Judy's dressing room and he knocked for admittance. We all heard the tears in her voice when she asked who was there. Old Dad, Bing said. Four minutes later, Crosby sauntered on stage. No introduction from Ken. He just wandered out, as he often did when Carpenter was talking. 
It took a beat or two before the audience recognized the casually dressed, nonchalant man wearing the hat. He could have been a stagehand. Why, it's Bing, Ken said in mock surprise, and the house thundered as applause greeted the groaner. We got a guest this evening, Bing told them when they stopped clapping. Good kid, old pal of ours around here. I'm pretty confident you like her too, so what say you let her know it? And he turned to the wings where a trembling Judy stood with Allsop's comforting arms around her. Some folks would like to say hello, Judy. That's all he said. Judy got a standing ovation even before she set foot on stage. It was a memorable moment. By the time she joined Bing at the mic center stage, she drowned her butterflies in tears of relief and gratitude. She was magnificent in performance. That incident often reminds me as a misty-eyed, or it comes back to me as a misty-eyed reminder that all of us make erroneous assumptions based on fear and uncertainty. Bing Crosby himself was the king of cool. There remains only one time that I can remember him losing it. We were in New York, and our guest was Beatrice Lilly. For reasons I dare not recall, Bill Morrow, my producer and collaborator, had let the writing of the script go until the last hours. Bing was not happy about that. He had the quaint notion that actors should have the chance to rehearse the entire script before performing, not just a part of it. Well, that was one of his strange notions. While Bing, B, and Ken were on stage in front of the audience, I was in Crosby's dressing room typing the good nights, about three pages of dialogue and making five carbon copies before Xerox. Morrow dashed in and out of the control room to suggest line changes to gather my pages. While Carpenter was reading the last commercial, Morrow hopped on stage to hand the new pages to Bing and B to Ken and John Scott. In the script was a reference to be read by the very British Miss Lilly to England's Sir Stafford Cripps, who was then in the news. And when she came to it, no doubt shaken by the strange American experience of a cold reading to millions of listeners, be read, Sir Stifford Craps. <laughs> she never finished the joke, whatever it was. The roar of laughter floored the entire cast. Fortunately, we were on tape, the first network radio series to be recorded. When the band, the cast, and the audience had regained their composure, the good nights were read correctly. And if you're ever lucky enough to get hold of that tape, you'll know why the audience laughs hysterically at the mere mention of Sir Stafford Cripps' name. When the show was over, Bing left the stage immediately to confront me and Morrow in the hallway. Never do that again, he said. Never. The look in his blue eyes directed at both of us was the father of the laser beam. There may still be a hole in the wall behind where I was standing. That same week, Mr. Crosby, or that same Crosby, the week before, had stopped by the suite at the Sherry Netherland Hotel where Bill and I were riding. He came to pick us up in the limousine to drive us to the theater. He was in a jovial mood, and he began singing as we walked to the elevator. A registered nurse popped out of a nearby apartment. She said, I thought I recognized your voice, Mr. Crosby. I have a sick old woman in here. Oh, I'm sorry, Bing apologized hastily. I hope I didn't disturb her. Quite the opposite, the nurse said. In point of fact, she's a devoted admirer of yours. Could you take just a moment to say hello? Bing left us in the hall to enter the apartment. 
We waited five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, more and more impatiently. We would do it rehearsal. Fred Allen was our guest. Fred was always prompt. Another few minutes passed. Bill was about to rap on the door when we heard from inside the words of Tura Lura Lura as Bing was singing the Irish lullaby to that lady. He did two or three more songs, and then he returned to us. Before Bill could say anything, Bing said, we got stuck in traffic. <laughs> the law was laid down. We never told anyone the truth about why we'd kept the company and Fred waiting. It rained the evening of that broadcast. Fred, a perfectionist, was sitting with Bill and me making some additions to the script, improving what was, he was concerned about, making trims and cuts and so forth, the usual last minute before we go on the air. The theater's head usher came in to tell Morrow about the rain, and he said that a long line of people were waiting for the doors to open. Could he let them in early? And Bill, who was always edgy before a show, was more nervous than usual after Bing's delay getting us to the studio. The hell with him, he said. I don't want any audience in until we're ready. Let them stand there. And Fred was pained. For God's sakes, Bill, he cajoled. Let them come inside. They're bad enough when they're dry. One of America's most talented actors, and there she is now. <laughs> Thank you very much. One of America's most talented actors and the essence of our national character was Henry Fonda. He was dedicated to his art and he worked diligently to prepare whatever role he'd chosen. Fonda chose the George Goebel show for one of his rare excursions into variety entertainment. Following the week of rehearsals, we were getting ready for the last full run-through an hour before we went on the air, live, with no stops to correct mistakes, and I was summoned to Fonda's dressing room. He was lying on the couch, his long legs dangling over on one end, a damp towel covering his eyes. What's wrong, Hank? I expected the worst. He removed the towel and he stared up at me with those piercing blue eyes that had withered the kidneys of many a director. Is this stuff we're doing funny, he asked. My God, I said, this is a fine time to be doubting the material. Is it, he insisted. Look, I said, in a couple of minutes we start the dress. The band's out there. It'll be the first time they've heard any of it. There'll be 20 or 30 people in the house, ushers, agents, agency, network people. You'll get a pretty fair idea of whether it's funny or not by their reaction. Ask me after we get a verdict from them. He got up to dress for his opening bit. Fonda had a few lines to exchange with George at the top of the show before rushing off stage to change his wardrobe for a sketch. I stood in the wings as he loped off, removing his tie. Well, I asked. His face broke into that gleaming grin that has lit up dark theaters everywhere. It warmed every cold cockle in my heart. And when we did the show before a full audience, it was one of the best we'd done all season. He was worried about it. I've had a lot of actors tell me a script isn't funny. Naturally, I defend the work. Henry Fonda was the only one who asked me if indeed it was funny. And for a few minutes, he had me wondering the same thing. Anxiety is infectious. While I was producing and writing the Kraft Music Hall starring Milton Berle, I was excited to have booked as a guest 
a lady I'd wanted to work with since an evening in Ole Olson's dressing room at New York's Winter Garden Theater. At that time, Olson and Johnson, Ole Olson and Chick Johnson, were starring in their record-breaking run of Hell's a Poppin', and I was employed by them as a writer to keep the show topical. The Actors Fund staged an annual variety show for their charity. It was to be in our theater that year, a midnight performance following Hell's a Poppin', and among the stars who donated their talents to that memorable night were Laurence Olivier and Tallulah Bankhead. Miss Bankhead barged into Ole's dressing room where I often worked on new material while he and Chick were on stage doing the old. Tallulah had a mink coat and a platoon of admirers trailing her as she entered loudly demanding something to drink. Olson did not keep liquor in his dressing room. Bankhead insisted that was highly uncivilized. I agreed with her. There had to be a dram of something, she said, and she rummaged around until she found a bottle of brandy hidden in the back of a drawer, and she broke it open with a cry of triumph that might have sexually aroused a bull moose in Canada. When Ole came into the room, damp from his performance, he was astonished to find Bankhead sharing the contents of his bottle with her friends. Is that my Napoleon brandy, he asked. I slipped quietly out the door as Bankhead told him where she'd found it. I have a nose for such things, she assured him. Ole groaned, oh my God, that was given to me by the governor of Indiana just last month. I was saving it for a special occasion. Darling, I heard her croon, this is a special occasion. I'm in your house. Years later on the Burl Show, I reminded her of the incident. I recall only the brandy, Tallulah said. It was inferior. <laughs> we had five days of rehearsal during which Milton was on his best behavior. He admired Tallulah, and if he was more quiet than usual, it was only because she monopolized all conversation. But her talk was always good, even if it was incessant. And we became close almost immediately. I called her my long-playing friend. Showtime. Tallulah stood behind the curtain as Burl worked in front of it, leading up to her introduction. I'd left the control room to stand with her at her request. She held my hand. She was trembling. What's wrong, I asked. Don't you know your lines? God, she groaned. She put her arms around me. Her small body quivered. I'm nervous. I lifted her chin and I looked down at her. Come on, I whispered. You've accomplished every triumph in the English-speaking theater. There isn't anyone who doesn't know you, admire you, respect you. You're one of the few people in the world known by just one name. You're beautiful, talented, magnetic, magnificent. When Milton says your name, that house is going to explode with affection because like Chaplin and Garbo, you're the only Tallulah there is. Bullshit, she said. but I love it. <laughs> she sailed out as her play on music hit. The reception she got did restore her faith in herself, if not in the material we'd provided. Alas, it was not one of our better shows, which leads me to believe that apprehension is sometimes justified. The least apprehensive star with whom I ever worked is the sweet, gentle, talented Mr. Harry Morgan. We first met when I did a few scripts for Jack Webb's old Dragnet series. Today, Harry's the star of my television version of the Moss Hart George Kaufman play, You Can't Take It With You. 
Harry plays the leading role of Martin Vanderhoff, Grandpa. We completed 22 episodes last December, and we're now waiting to find out if we'll do another 22 next season if the Writers Guild strike in, ever ends in time for a next season. And at this point, it doesn't look like it will be. Harry Morgan is always in complete control of his emotions with a unique talent for making you grin one moment and then instantly bring a lump to your throat or a tear to your eye. Early last season, taping an episode before a live audience, Harry had a quick wardrobe change to make. He didn't hurry, he never does, but he's also never late for a cue. And he hit his mark just on time, delivered his line, which got a small chuckle, and then he sat down and got a huge laugh to everyone's surprise, including his own. We stopped tape and I left the control room to take Harry aside and explain why he'd gotten the unexpected laugh. His fly was open. When he sat down, it was obvious to everyone but him. Instead of embarrassment, Harry just grinned, turned his back, quickly zipped up, then took me downstairs and said to the audience, this is our producer. He wrote the script and he's upset because my underwear got a bigger laugh than his dialogue. For the rest of the evening, whenever a line fell flat, Harry would ad-lib to the other men of the cast, let's all open our flies. <laughs> took a little longer than usual to tape the episode, but everyone had a wonderful time thanks to Harry Morgan. Well, I believe I've, uh, I've talked long enough now. You've certainly been gracious about listening, so let me just wind up this portion of it with a little story that I always enjoy. At a medical school, the professor turned to the only female in his class and he asked, what portion of man's anatomy enlarges eight times its normal size under excitation? And the girl blushed and she fidgeted and she said, doctor, it's unfair of you to single me out to answer that question. The teacher turned to another student, Mr. Brown. And Brown replied, the pupil of the eye. Correct, the teacher snapped. Then he turned back to the young lady. As for you, Miss Colwell, your failure to answer leads me to make three conclusions. One, you have not done your homework. Two, you have an erotic mind. And three, you are in for some enormous disappointments in your life. <laughs> I... Uh... I hope I haven't disappointed you enormously this evening, but there's still time. I'll turn this back now to Paul. I can answer some questions. I just want to tell you about a kind of wonderful act of devotion that brought us this film tonight. Uh, when I talked to Hal many, many weeks ago, I said, do you think you can arrange to bring the film with you? And he said, oh, I, I got friends in high places at the Guild. I'm sure I can. And I relaxed. And <clears throat> this morning at noon, I got a call from the Writers Guild saying we have a small problem about the print. Unexpectedly, we found that it was shown, there's only one of these 16 millimeter prints. Unexpectedly, we found it was shown in Boston yesterday. And uh, it's due back at Los Angeles Airport at 10 minutes of 5 tonight. And the man from the Writers Guild said, do you have a messenger service that could pick it up and bring it back? And I said, no, but if you do, uh, we'll be happy to pick up the bill. Well, he said, we don't either. 
but I'll go, and this is one of the executives of the guild, I'll go and pick it up at the plane, and tell me how to get there, and I hope I get there in time. And Ed Justin of the guild picked the damn print up, arrived as we were having dinner. Fortunately, uh, he arrived in time so that we could buy him dinner, and he got the print here in time. Now, this is the way the guild works. And I thank Hal for arranging it, and I thank Ed, if he's still here, for bringing it to us. Hal, will you come back up? Ed did leave, but I, I, I want to thank Ed, too. For that, that really was a remarkable thing that he did for us. Incidentally, if you rewind the film, I'll take it back to him in the morning. <laughs> uh, yes, Mr. Chaplin, I believe, yes. Yes, I think, I think so. Uh, tomorrow at 3 o'clock, there'll be a meeting of the board, and Wednesday evening, there will be a general membership meeting, and we are going to urge the membership to turned down the offer that was the, the, la the last or latest offer from the, uh, uh, the Alliance. Well, yes. That's true, Mr. Duff. I was on Guam during World War II. That, I, was, I was one of those responsible for running a radio station, yes, sir. Jungle Jolly Gerald was uh, Jungle Jolly Gerald was the name, yes. And uh, that that uh, that familiar voice, ladies and gentlemen, is one of the finest actors in radio, television, and motion pictures. A fellow uh, veteran of the wars on the Pacific, Mr. Howard Duff. Thank you, Howard. <laughs> and what a. <laughs> And what a great delight it was to see him here in person. Can you still get in your old uniform, Howard? No, my tie won't even fit anymore. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes, ma'am. I can't think of one just offhand, other than what makes you such a devilishly attractive young man. <laughs> But no one's asked me that in years. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Uh, that film was put together by a very fine documentary uh, filmmaker named Chuck Workman. And uh, he must have viewed uh, literally hundreds of films and made his selection of those lines to uh, put them all together. How, how long did it take him? Oh, it took him minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. He must have worked on it for for a good six or seven months. I'm sure. Yes, ma'am. The sequel? Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure there will be a sequel. Maybe uh, maybe memorable lines from from television. It'll be much shorter, but. Uh... <laughs> yes. Yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. 
once did I realize that was funny? I get, <laughs> uh, I'm, 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 uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm really not sure. <laughs> but uh, I came from a from a house uh, where you, uh, you you had to be fast and and think funny in order to survive. Uh, I had a very very funny father. I had a very very witty mother. And uh, my brother and sister are both uh, very witty, and uh, you just had to keep up. You know, it was uh, it was publisher parish in a sense. You know? <laughs> uh, Self confidence—it's uh, all a facade. Inside, I'm a quivering mass of apprehension. Yes, ma'am. No, my daughter's not here tonight. As a matter of fact, my daughter's on her way to Iowa right now to, to uh, do some filming because she's also a director. And uh, I, uh, I am not a party to the negotiations themselves. The negotiating committee is a group of uh, 15 or 17, I've forgotten the number, uh, working members of the Writers Guild who work with our, the uh, paid staff and our chief negotiator. And uh, they arrive at certain decisions. Those decisions are then brought back and submitted to the board of directors. I am a member of that board. The board then votes up or down and uh, decides whether or not to accept uh, the, uh, uh, the decisions that the uh, negotiating committee has arrived at. And those decisions, in turn, are uh, then submitted to the general membership. We have a very democratic union and it is the 9,000 members of the Writers Guild of America West who make the decision as to whether we accept or reject a contract, the majority rules. Uh, does that adequately answer your question? Or did you want to know something more intimate about me and my daughter and our relationship? <laughs> She's so much smarter than I am, I wouldn't, I, I, I wouldn't hesitate to, to second-guess her. Yes, ma'am. I'm sorry, are there issues major enough? Well, we would hope so. The, uh, the present plan is that the new, this new contract would be for a four-year period as opposed to the three-year periods we've had in the past. Uh, we hope that uh, the uh, ultimate settlement of all this will be such that we do not have to go on strike again. Uh, every, uh, every increment that the Guild has made has been a little bit each time. Uh, the Writers Guild have been in the forefront of all the Guilds in opposing management or standing up and demanding the things that other Guilds eventually get to some degree. And we hope that uh, we will have solved enough of the problems so that we don't have to go on strike again and that management will find out that they can continue to live with the, the, uh, with the arrangements that have been made and still show a profit. At the moment, this, the Writers Guild strike really, from our point of view, just started about two weeks ago. For 14 weeks, we've been on lockout. It was management's decision not to give us a contract. And then when things began to get a little bit more desperate, uh, then we really went on strike and said, no, we're not going to accept the terms that you people have offered us. Yes? Well, 
I once uh, uh, saw a fella in, a, in the lobby of a theater during intermission that I thought I knew. And I went up to him and said, pardon me, but aren't you Hal Cantor? And he said, no, I'm not, but you are. I'm Byron Palmer. I said, oh, of course, I knew that. <laughs> yes, ma'am. This is in a three-piece suit, I think. Yeah, that's as. I'm I'm not really sure uh, how to answer that, except that, uh, as I said, you know, when I when I first started, I was very very young, and the people I worked with were very very young. And if you're if you're 17 years old and you're working with somebody who's 24 years old, you consider him kind of old, you know? But when you're 50 years old, 24-year-old is just a kid, you know? And I think that there have always been young people in this business. It's always been a young business. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's unique that people uh, in their 60s still work. Yes, yes, the majority are under 45, that's right. The majority of them are possibly under 40. Gentlemen in the back. It's going to fall on very, very hard times. You're going to, uh, it's going to stop. Another gentleman there, yes. I'm sorry? Yes, I have tremendous interest in directing a feature film. I've directed four of them and would be very happy to direct another one. Is that a proposal? <laughs> one more question. Carson, uh, uh, Johnny Carson went back on the air and said he would write his own show, and three days later he went back into reruns. That answers that. He found out that it's not that easy. You cannot ad-lib 90 minutes of comedy every night, or, or even six minutes of comedy every night. Yes, gentlemen in the back. Mel Shavelson's? Am I still with you? Uh, I'm going to go upstairs, breathe on a mirror, and I will let you know the answer. <laughs> Mel Shavelson's obituary. He's, he's negotiating. Huh? Oh, yes. All right, we've had Mr. Cantor on for a long time, and he's been very gracious. 
and Al. Thank, thank you very much. I thank you for thank coming. You all.